We would love to have them be a part of what's going on in our Vine Kids program. They're going out this door here. Our fifth and sixth grade kiddos have got a uh, program back there, and they'll go out that far back door. So any of those categories, our youngins can go this way, and our older kiddos can go back that direction. So awesome. Well, we are glad that you are here. Again, if you are here for the first time, let me again tell you how honored we are to have you in worship with us. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. As our guest, we are um, just blessed that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. Uh, you're actually coming into the middle of a journey that we're on. We're in a journey to the book of, a- uh, book of Acts. That was two and a half years of my existence um, tied up in that. We've moved on. Um, we are in the book of John. Fifteen weeks in, as a matter of fact, in the book of John. God, I said that so many years in a row. Uh, book of John, uh, chapter 4. And we have wrapped up a kind of section, a three-week look with Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well. And we're actually in the middle of a section of the book where John, the gospel writer, is teaching us and showing us about the deity of Christ through his interactions and encounters with people. Not perfect people, but broken people. People that have issues and struggles and mistakes and fears and failures. And, and we're seeing Jesus' uh, uh, deity played out through those relationships. And so we're actually in the middle of that section. The woman at the well was a great expression of that. We're also going to see that today. Jesus is going to have an encounter with a, a royal official, another kind of broken, desperate person. And we're going to see Jesus' deity on full display. Now, as I've said every single week, the book of John is different than the other gospels. It's actually different than any other book in the Bible, the whole focus of the gospel of John is for us to see Jesus as Savior. John wants us to see that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the incarnation. And so everything that is in that gospel is pointing us directly to the person of Jesus Christ. It's not about telling a history about a man that walked the earth. It's about saying this is God in the flesh and everything he did pointed to his deity. And we are right in the middle of that. So it makes my goal, as I say, as a teacher preacher, really, really easy. And that is, I just want you to see Jesus, right? That's, that's it. We're not trying to do anything else. No smoke and mirrors, just Jesus. We're in the middle of that sort of story. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 4. We're at the very end of John chapter uh, 4, and we're going to be picking up as Jesus leaves the area of Samaria and heads to Galilee where he was going. And I'll kind of give you a little catch up there in just a second. But let's take a moment and let's pray, and let's just invite God to teach our hearts uh, this morning as we open his word. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is true. I thank you that it is real. I thank you that it is living and active. God, this is an encounter with, with you. You tell us an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. This is your theopunestos. It is literally your breath of God. Lord, we pray that what you would do this morning is you would teach our hearts, that you would instruct us, that you would reveal yourself to us. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you. Whatever you need to hear this morning, whatever he wants to speak to your heart, just let him know that you are open for him to reveal himself to you. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or in front of you, even if you don't know the name, even if this is your very first week with us, just pray for somebody else. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. We want to recognize that Sunday morning is not about me, it's not about you, but that God is moving and working and we want to see him move and work. So pray for someone around you that God might speak to them this morning. Whatever it is they have to hear or need to hear, whatever he needs to reveal to them, that he would just speak to their hearts.
Lord, we love you. And we thank you so much for Jesus, for loving us so deeply and so desperately. God, teach our hearts this morning. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So we're going to be in verse 43 of chapter 4. We're going to go all the way down to the end, um, to this encounter that Jesus has with the official son. And it's going to start, and it's going to say, after two days in Samaria, Jesus leaves again for Galilee. Now let me just remind you real quickly, Jesus was in the area of Judea. And for those of you that have missed our giant geography lesson, we have the, the whole ancient Palestine, the country right here, right? It's divided into three parts. And you've got Judea to the south, you have Samaria in the middle, and you have Galilee to the north. And the whole thing's only about 120 miles long. And it's in these three massive sections. And the west border is the Mediterranean Sea, and the east border is the Jordan River. All right, and so this whole country here was divided into these three main areas. The problem was the area in the middle, the Jewish people hated. They hated the Samaritans, and I kind of told you why. We spent a lot of time there, but they, they believed that they were an unclean people. They were a, a mixed race, if you will. They had intermarried with the Assyrians when they had been taken over and conquered and hauled off into exile centuries before, and so the Jewish people felt they were impure and they wouldn't have anything to do with them. And so instead of going from Judea to Galilee or Galilee to Judea, they would cross the Jordan River on the east side. They would walk up and out of the way, 20 miles each side, and then cross back over just so they didn't have to put one foot into that country of Samaria, right? They had no relationship with them. So, of course, when we look last week and we see that Jesus has to go through Judea to Galilee, he goes straight through Samaria, just right through the heart of it, right? And he encounters this woman at the well, and he spends this time with them, and we actually explored that for three weeks, so I won't really get into it. But Jesus spends two days with the Samaritans there. They urged him. They said, please stay with us. At the end of that text, if you remember, Brandon last week talked about this. The Samaritans believed not just because of what Jesus said and did, but they believed that he was the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And they urged him to spend time with them, and Jesus spent two days with them. And so after two days in Samaria, we're going to pick up right there at verse 43 of chapter 4. This is what it says. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when he arrived in Galilee, the, Galilean, the, Galileans, the Galileans excuse me, welcomed him. And they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When the man heard that Jesus arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come home and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and he departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when the son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed having come from Judea to Galilee. All right, so a couple things we have to pay attention to, and I'll kind of walk you through this. A couple of things we have to pay attention to in that first 
section of text, which are, are really interesting. So Jesus spends two days in, Gal- in, in Samaria where the Samaritans had listened to him speak and they believed that he was the actual Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so after those two days, Jesus continues on his journey to Galilee where he had left the area of Judea, right? Because the Pharisees were beginning to see his ministry was gaining more popularity than John the Baptist. And so Jesus left for Galilee And he went through Samaria and he gets there. And as he's getting there, John reminds us that Jesus himself said that a prophet has no honor in his own homeland. Now you got to remember that the Galilee area was Jesus' homeland, right? Nazareth is where Jesus was from. It was 10 miles south of Cana. And 15 miles to the east of Cana was Capernaum, where kind of would be the central hub of Jesus' ministry. We believe that Peter, his mother-in-law, lived there. And Jesus spent a lot of his time going in and out of Capernaum. He had done the miracle of water to wine in Cana, which was just, you know, a few miles, 10 miles or so north of where he grew up. People in the area knew him. For all practical purposes, Nazareth, the area, Galilee, that was Jesus' homeland. And John says that Jesus himself had said that a prophet has no honor, right, in his homeland. And so he's essentially saying that the people that Jesus is from don't honor him the way that the Samaritans did. They believed that Jesus was, in fact, the Savior of the world, right? But the people from Galilee, the Galileans, right? They didn't honor Jesus in the same same way. Now, this is not a surprise, right? If you remember John chapter 1, John, the gospel writer, tells us that Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him in 111. Right? This is the entire kind of point of the gospel, that Jesus came to those, his own creation, his own people, and his own people didn't even recognize him. So, so John makes this clear, that Jesus is leaving an area of people that people hated, the Jewish people hated, that recognized Jesus as Savior, going to a place where they should love him and honor him as Savior of the world, and those people don't even recognize him. But then something strange happens in verse 45, right? In verse 45, we read that Jesus says that he has no honor in his own homeland, right? But when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So how can he have no honor and at the same time be welcomed by the Galileans? And we need to pay attention to that just a little bit because the answer is right there in the idea of welcomed. If you continue reading, John tells us that the reason they welcomed him was that they had been at the Passover feast where Jesus had done miraculous signs and wonders. So a lot of the Galileans had traveled to Jerusalem like the Jewish people do on the pilgrimage festivals. They had seen Jesus two chapters earlier in our gospel study do incredible things at Passover. They saw the wonders and they wanted Jesus, the miracle guy, the guy that does signs and wonders, to come and do really cool things. Because after all, he's the same guy that had changed water into wine. What John is saying is that Jesus' own people didn't receive him as Savior as the Samaritans received him. They welcomed him in as some kind of magician, some kind of guy that performs signs and wonders. And so the answer is there in the welcome. They're not welcoming Jesus saying, come and rescue us. They're saying, come and do really cool things, right? Change water into wine, perform some tricks, do the stuff that you do because we saw you do really amazing things back in Jerusalem. So we're welcoming you to do those here again. And so the Galileans, Jesus' own people, welcoming him as miracle man, right? And not necessarily a savior of the world. And then enters this royal official, right? So as he's there, we learn that there is a royal official who lives in Capernaum, which is about 15 miles to the east of Canaan. And we know that he has a sick son who has a 
terrible fever and is dying. And when he hears that Jesus is coming to Cana, he decides that he has to go and find Jesus and bring him back, right? The 15 miles back to have him heal his son. Now, we don't know any more about this royal official outside of the fact that he's a pretty big deal because he's a royal official, whatever that means, and that he knew somehow that Jesus could do something. Now, we don't know if he was actually maybe at the Passover, or we don't know if he was at the wedding where Jesus turned water into the wine, or we don't know if he just heard rumors going around that Jesus was a miraculous guy, but he believed or thought that Jesus was powerful enough to heal his son, that he was his last and desperate hope. And so he leaves his dying son. Now imagine that. you got a son that's dying, and you leave your dying son to walk 15 miles to find this guy to beg him to come back with you. That was the intention. He shows up in town. He inquires about where Jesus is. He finds Jesus and he does just that. He begs him to come back. Verse 47 says that he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Jesus, please come back with me. Verse 48, Jesus has this somewhat honestly troubling response when we first read it. Right? It seems really odd and out of place for a God that we want to be super compassionate to a, son, to a father who's losing his child. Jesus says in 48, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. So here's this royal official who's just walked 15 miles to find Jesus. And he comes to him and he says, my son's dying. Will you please come home with me? And Jesus' response is, unless you people see Signs and wonders you will never believe. Seems harsh. It seems almost like a rebuke. And on some level it is, but not necessarily to the man. He says, unless you people, it's actually a plural statement. Here's what I think is unfolding. This guy is a big deal. I can promise you as a royal official from Capernaum, he didn't walk there by himself. He most likely traveled with servants or with family or with friends, and they came in a group. And when he shows up in Cana and he begins to ask about where Jesus is, here's this royal official coming into town with a relatively small or medium-sized entourage, most likely, asking about Jesus. And people are curious, what is going on? This is the same guy that turned water into wine right here some few months ago. He's the same guy that was at the Passover doing miraculous things. And here comes a royal official with his entourage, wants to know where he is. Something is going to happen. And when they showed up, in front of Jesus, it wasn't just an official. It was a whole group of people. People from Cana, people that had come down with the official friends and family, and people that were just around that wanted to see what was going on. It was a crowd. Everywhere Jesus went, a crowd broke out. And so here you have this guy who's losing his son, surrounded by a crowd of some people who care, some people who loved his son, some people who were just there for support, and some people who just want to see something really cool happen, and some people who just wonder what all the fuss is about. And Jesus sees all of this, and he says, unless you people, right, look into all of them, unless you people, who we just learned, right, didn't even welcome him as who he is, but only because they saw him do signs and wonders. Unless you people see miraculous signs, you will never believe basically rebukes his own people, the homeland, the people that are from his area, and say, you have known me, 
You have seen me, you have listened to me, but unless you see me do things, you won't believe. That's why you're all here, right? You want to see something great, some kind of trick, some kind of magic, some kind of a miracle. That's why you've all gathered around this official son. This is what Jesus essentially is saying, right? Well, the official seems to ignore it completely. And I don't know what happened in that moment. Maybe the crowd dissipated. Maybe they were all bummed and they left. Maybe it was just this guy left standing. Who knows? But it's almost as if he ignores Jesus completely. And he just looks at him and he says, Sir, in verse 49, come down before my child dies. Now, has there ever been a, a truer and more desperate statement in Scripture from a person to Jesus? I mean, truthfully. So Jesus just looks at him in front of this huge crowd of people and he says, you guys won't believe unless you see me do things. And this guy just in that moment looks at Jesus and says, sir, unless you come with me, my kid's going to die. I mean, that is raw. And he's not kidding around. He is here as Jesus. His only hope is to come back with me. And maybe if you come and touch him, he'll live. And he just says, sir, unless you come down with me, my son will die. He believed that his son was dead without Jesus. And then something incredible happens, and I can't put my finger on it because our text doesn't say it, but something incredible happens in verse 50. Because Jesus looks at this man now who has just laid his heart out in front of him in pure and true desperation. And he says, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. There is so much there that I wish we knew. Were they looking at each other? Was the crowd still around? Was the man's eyes full of tears? What transpired where Jesus could look into the heart and soul of this guy and say, listen, you can go. I don't need to go with you. You can go. Your son will live. And the man, right, the royal official, took Jesus at his word. You know what that means? It means that he believed him. When you take somebody at their word, it means... You believe them. In that moment, in that exchange, when Jesus says, you can go, and the man says, I believe you, and he turns and he walks. That moment of faith that says, I came for you, and you told me it was okay, and I believe you. And I'm going to walk 15 miles home now in hopes that your words are true. It's an incredible thing that unfolds right there. Jesus says, you can go without me. He's going to live. And he says, okay. And the official and his party, they turn and they begin the trek back home. Whatever that is. Well, while they're walking, right, <clears throat> his servants run out to him on the road. They meet him there, right? Because they don't want the, the, the official in agony any longer. They don't want him <clears throat> upset anymore. And they say, come out to him on the road, and they say, your son, you're not going to believe it. He's gotten miraculously better. The fever has left him, right? He's well. 
Now, the official's left with this kind of question in his mind, which is, what happened? Did Jesus, being a prophet, just proclaim that my son was going to live and so he could see the future? Or did Jesus himself actually heal my son? And so he inquires. He says, what time did his fever break or did the fever leave him? And the servant said, well, it was the seventh hour, which is about one o'clock in the afternoon. It's the seventh hour. And that moment, the official realized that's where he was standing, talking to Jesus at the same time. And that with one word, Jesus had spoken life into his son, the same way God spoke life into creation. And it says that he and his entire household believed. And not believed because, what John is getting at, not believed because they saw a sign of wonders, but believed in something so much bigger like the Samaritans did. That this Jesus was not just a miracle, magic, parlor trick guy. And it says they all believed. And I started looking at this text and I started thinking to myself, man, there's, there's a couple of things that really stick in my heart. Some are statements and some are just kind of questions and they're, they're just things that matter to me. Right? And I, I want them to be things that matter to you and I'm going to point them out. And the first is really obvious super obvious, but I think it needs to be stated. And I state this kind of stuff a lot because I think you hear me and then we ignore it, but it's true. And the first thing I want you to understand this is that the officials, the royal officials, desperation was real. Now, I I know that's incredibly obvious, but I want you to understand the realness of what he was feeling, right? Because I think as believers, we don't give ourselves the freedom to deal in pain and hurt and doubt, and sorrow, and anguish. We somehow believe that if we believe in Jesus, we're supposed to take all of those emotions and shove them to the sides because somehow that means that we don't have faith. But pain and desperation and hurt are incredibly real. And sadly and truthfully, many of us in here have felt those things. And if you haven't, the reality is that sometime in your life you most likely will. You will come to a place where your heart is shattered, where you feel alone, where you feel desperate, where you wonder if any of this garbage that you're thinking you believe is even true. And you want to scream out at the top of your lungs, God, I prayed prayed every day, why did you let my mom die of cancer? We want to scream out at the top of our lungs, God, why in my hour that I needed you the most did you feel like you were so far away? And we are petrified of those statements as believers because we believe or we think or we're told that that means that somehow we have this incredible lack of faith that God is then going to punish us for. And it's just untrue. All through Scripture, we see people coming to moments of hurt and pain and desperation. It happened with the disciples. It happened with Mary at the tomb. It happened with the guys on the walk to Emmaus when Jesus showed up and walked with them and their hearts were downcast and he didn't even tell them that he was Jesus and it was going to be okay. He let them walk in pain and revealed himself to them in the middle of it. Look, you may not be in a time of incredible desperation. Maybe it's a time of frustration. Maybe 2016-17 has not been your favorite year, your favorite time. Maybe you're stuck in the same pattern. Maybe your attitude is defeating your heart. Maybe you're angry at a whole lot of things. I believe that God gives us permission 
to feel those things and come to him with them. This official comes to Jesus with all that he has, which is just, I need you. He didn't have a list of kind of ransoms or demands. He just needed Jesus. He had no other options. And so he just comes in total desperation. And Jesus kind of gives this bigger rebuke to the crowd. And the guy just dumps his heart on the floor and says, unless you come with me, my, my child dies. Like, I, I don't even know how to breathe that out. His desperation was incredibly real. And oftentimes when we read scripture, we remove ourselves from those real moments. It seems like a bunch of superhero people that have super faith and that don't walk in the real things that you're walking in or that I'm walking in. And that's a lie. They were real people. They're walking in the same real hurts and struggles and fears. And they brought them to Jesus. And he's coming with this one question in mind, right? It's this. Jesus, can you fix this? That's the question that drove him from Capernaum all the way down to Cana. Jesus, can you fix this? And it's a question that most of us come to Jesus with, frankly. We come to Jesus all the time with our hurt and desperation and fears and failures and doubts, and we say, Jesus, can you fix this? But Jesus, I think, waits with a bigger question for us. And he certainly had a bigger question for The crowd and a bigger question for this royal official. And the question's this essentially is Do you take me at my word? And I'll be honest with you, it's a it's a brutal question because the answer in my heart is really painful. Because I come asking Jesus to fix things. I mean, this is the way we want. We want a religion. We want a God that will fix our things. We'll do the things that we need him to do on our agenda, right? We'll perform for us. We'll be quotable for us. And we'll make our lives somewhat more navigatable. And we want him to do it in our frame, on our time. And we want him to entertain me. And look, that sounds brutal, but it's just flat out true. We want a God that entertains us. We want a God that we come to and say, fix this, and he does it in the way that we want it done. And he gives us something that we can quote and tell everybody about, and we all feel better about ourselves. And so we've created religion and Christianity around that lie. We've created entire movements of churches and Christian kind of media paradigms around a lie that says, God, you are here for me to have my best day, my best life, my best hope. If you read scripture, it's a lie. You exist for God's glory. He does not exist for your entertainment. And so Jesus looks at this crowd and he says, why are you really here? To watch me dance and do a bunch of stuff for you so that you can believe in a miracle man? But the official, right, is met with that bigger question. Do I take Jesus at his word? Because he looked right at him and he said, you can go. Your son will live. Now, if there's ever been a bigger moment of faith, right? Now, if you believe that Jesus 
in order for him to heal your son, that he had to come with you back to Capernaum, lay his hands on him, and heal your child. You believe that. And Jesus looked at you and he said, it's going to be okay. Go back. He doesn't beg with him anymore. He doesn't plead with him. He doesn't fight with him. He doesn't say, but you promise. He just says, I believe you. Do you imagine that walk back to a son that you left who was taking his last breaths? I think the question for us is really simple, and that's, do you believe God? Do you really take Jesus at his word? That he is faithful? That he will never leave you nor forsake you? That he is enough for you? And he has called us in Scripture to believe that he is all that we need. He is my all in all, my everything. He is my sustainer, my life giver, my provider. And he calls us to anchor our heart in that truth. And he looks right at us and he says, do you believe me? And man, that question has a painful answer in my heart. Because the majority of the time, it is no. It's no. And as much as I want it to be yes, the majority of the time, it's no. Because I need you to come back with me and do what I need to have happen. I have to see it. I have to touch it. I have to believe it. Because it is impossible for me to turn my back and walk away from what I've known. And that's where most of us live. And the discontentment between a God that says, believe me, and my own heart that wants to drag him around for my self-pleasing. This official had to moment of crisis where he had to either believe that Jesus was true or he had to just keep pleading or give up. I want to be at that place where I go, God, I read what you tell me in scripture about how you love me, about how you'll provide for me and protect me and how you are enough for my soul. And I want to turn from my fear and I want to walk back. I want to anchor my heart in that truth and say, I believe that with all of my soul. You are enough for me. So we've got this desperation that leads us to this sort of much bigger question, right? Do we believe in Jesus' word? Do we take him at his word? And something incredible happens, right? Something really incredible happens happens in verse 53 and i'll wrap everything up with this in verse 53 after this official and his band of people have walked back and they encounter the servants that have come and said your son's alive and he says how did it happen when did it happen and he realized that it was at that moment that that his faith and that action met together and it changed him and it changed his entire household and the question that was plaguing my heart as I was going through this this week is how has my relationship with Christ changed me and changed the people around me? I mean, truthfully, really changed me. Changed the way that I see, the way that I think, the way that I trust, the way that I act. How have the things that God has promised me and the way that he has brought those to completion? I look back at 25 plus years of my life of how God has been faithful. We have the shortest memories ever as followers of Christ, right? If you really look at where your life is and where God has brought you from and how he has moved along the way, directed your paths and led things and spoken to you and whispered to you and comforted you, right? If we really remembered those things, we looked and had a long-term memory, 
we'll be amazing. But we have short memories, man. As soon as things get tough, we forget everything that God has ever done. <clears throat> Just like the Israelites. But if we really believed those things and, and anchored to them, right? Saw the way they were connected, that Jesus said he would and he did. That he said he would and he did. That should change me, right? Because the next time crisis happens, I can look at myself and say, but God is so real. And no, I, I don't know how this is going to come out. And I don't know, I don't know how it's going to all end, but I know that God is bigger than all of it because he always has been. And it's changed the way that I approach life. And that has changed people around me. This entire household believed. You know why they believed? Not just because Jesus healed the boy, but because the official had the faith to walk out of there. The people around him were changed because he believed Jesus. Not because some miracle happened, but because the official turned to his entourage and he says, we're going now. Why? Because Jesus said he would live. His faith in Christ changed people. Your heart for Christ will change people around you if you believe that God is who he says he is. How has your faith and relationship with Christ changed you and changed people? It's an incredibly profound question. Believe it or not, the greatest evangelistic tool we have as followers of Christ is authentically, authentically trusting Jesus. It's not some other tool. It's not the Evangicube. It's not a track. It's not the bridge illustration for spiritual laws. It's none of those things. The greatest evangelistic tool we have is authentically trusting Jesus. Because when you say, you know what? The world tells me I should be freaking out. But I believe that God is bigger and I'm going to trust him. That faith changes people. It changes people. This desperation is real. It throws us into a place of saying, do I really believe you? And if I do, how is that changing me and the people around me? And in this whole message, this whole series thing, there's not as many answers as there are questions. And I don't know how to tell you to do it. But I can promise you, if this royal official with a dying son can walk and stand face to face with the Savior of the world and believe that he is who he says he is, and put his trust in him, then I can. And so can you. And that should change every single one of us. That Jesus is who he says he is. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And for guys like this who are imperfect and broken and come in desperation and walk away completely changed. Lord, there's so much of my heart wrapped up in that, right? That I want to trust you all the time. Yet I'm afraid and I'm fearful and I've got doubts and the world is shouting at me with everything it has saying it'll never work out. And you look at me and you say, it's okay, you can go back. And I have to decide if I'm going to take you at your word that you are enough, that you are God. And Lord, I want to be at a place, and I pray for all of us that we would be at a place where we would just turn and say, we're going back because Jesus said so. And that in turn would change me, you, and it would change the people around us. God, you are Savior of the world. The Savior of the world that the Samaritans claimed, 
Savior of the world, this royal official is going to claim. And as we'll see next week, the Savior of the world that a broken throwaway will claim. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that whatever it is you're laying on our hearts, that would be echoed in our worship. That we would cry at the top of our lungs to a God that we so desperately need and want to put our trust and hope in. So Lord, hear our cries. We close our time in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, close out this morning.